0: So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. What a week. This last week has been with everything from the anticipation of Roe versus Wade being overturned. Even people were very hopeful that Monday we would have that ruling handed down in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case determining the future of abortion, we're going to take some important questions circling around abortion. I'm going to respond to the false claim that when abortion is outlawed, that maternal mortality rates rise. That's not true. I'll explain why. We'll also talk about whether birth control leads to higher rates of unplanned pregnancies. Also, I've been asked for the last couple weeks in particular to share a little bit about my food allergies, fertility, and thyroid story. I've shared a lot about our fertility journey, uh, but kind of the – the connection to years of food allergies and Hashimoto's disease and polycystic ovarian syndrome. I'll share a little bit about that because I know a lot of people are battling food allergies or trying to figure out what's going on with fertility and so I'll share a little bit of my journey and kind of how we got to where we were. I know so many people are looking for answers trying to figure out all the pieces of that puzzle. Also, breaking news today, you may have heard that Archbishop Salvador Cordelloni declared that Nancy Pelosi, that Speaker of the House that everyone's known and who claims to be Catholic, well, Archbishop Cordelloni has officially announced that nancy pelosi cannot receive communion ordering essentially and informing his priests and all deacons and extraordinary ministers that they are not to give holy communion our lord jesus christ body blood soul and divinity to nancy pelosi because of her public stance On abortion, I'll explain a little bit of that. Maybe you think that's harsh. Maybe you think this has been a long time coming. We'll get into it in just a couple minutes. But first, I want to talk about handling the LGBTQ identities, air quotes, identities of loved ones. I had a really interesting question come in this week, and it has to do with a, I was sent a social media post that's been circulating the internet recently. Now, it's an alleged um, posting of a writing prompt, a writing assignment for middle school kids at Christian Academy of Louisville. Now, this writing prompt was specifically encouraging and asking—it was an assignment for school students to write— a hypothetical letter, not a letter they're actually sending, but a hypothetical letter that would be written to a person who is living a same-sex lifestyle. Now, remember, this is a prompt being given to middle school kids. So I'm going to guess on the older range of middle school, middle school kids range from anywhere from as young as 10 years old to up to 14. So I'm going to guess we're probably at least in that 12 to 14 year old range of this is who the assignment was being given to. I'm going to read to you a little bit of the prompt and then the question I received online as to my thoughts on it. So, again, this was a writing prompt for middle schoolers. Just like you would, you know, be in a course and write a letter to your mom as if you were, you know, 30 years old looking back on your childhood. These letters, it's not like you're actually going to give this letter to this person, and you could, but it's just a writing assignment. It's a, a practice, you know, it's teaching you how to write. So, anyways, here we are. There is this worldview essay on humans, unit. And the writing prompt is to write a letter, it's an essay, but a letter to a friend of your same gender who's struggling with homosexuality. It reads, assume that you have known this friend since kindergarten. So majority of your lifetime for a middle schooler, you know, anywhere between five and nine years. Uh, So assume you've known this person since kindergarten, that you go to the same church, and you've been pretty good friends over the years until now. This friend is your same age. The aim of the letter should be to lovingly and compassionately speak truth to the person you're talking to in a way that does not approve of any sin. Try to persuade them of the goodness of God's design for them. And it breaks down, you know, the things that they're supposed to use. They want them to use sacred scripture. They want them to use a design for the good that God has in store for them. Uh, They want them to include why homosexuality will not bring satisfaction and that you love them even though you don't approve of this lifestyle. This is a writing prompt that was given to to middle school age kids. Now, There's a potential, depending on what grade in middle school, this might be a little bit heavy of a topic for middle schoolers, but we cannot be uh, naive enough to think that middle school kids are not dealing with this topic. The reality is is that many kids as young as in middle school are. Uh, There is absolutely that concern that this could be a little bit of a sexualization of kids where some kids aren't as aware of the uh of the reality of everything from sexuality to gender uh, dysphoria or same-sex attraction all of that so this could be a little bit of a scandalizing writing prompt for this age potentially i'm assuming that this school is working with kids on the older range of middle school closer to eighth grade and the reality is the writing prompt itself I don't see anything wrong with. This is clearly, they're saying, pretend this is a friend. You've known most of your life, at least since kindergarten, and you've been good friends. And we want you to lovingly try to persuade them to the good plan that God has in store for their life and encourage them and invite them to understand and to not live a same-sex lifestyle. That's what this prompt is asking. I was really intrigued because I received this from a young woman named Genesis on Instagram. She said, I'm a young Catholic still finding my faith, but I came across this post today and felt absolutely appalled because in my mind, according to my beliefs that I'm still growing in, I feel disgusted by this assignment given to young students. Should I try to see both perspectives, but in this case, it is hard to see the good in this assignment. I would love to hear your opinion Or I feel that this would be a great topic to spread awareness. Maybe you can touch on this in your podcast. Great question, Genesis. And I understand where you're coming from that you see this assignment. You think, wow, this is appalling. You're trying to tell someone to not be, quote, gay, right? I think that's what what a lot of people would see. Like This is a gay-shaming, don't-be-gay letter that, middle school kids are being brainwashed to write. And that's one perspective that you could have. But if you actually read the prompt, and maybe we'll post a link to it on social media. We'll include a link in the show notes. You'll actually see that this writing prompt focuses on lovingly sharing the truth of the gospel, the truth that same-sex interaction isn't satisfying, and That God has a better plan in store than any of us could even imagine for our own lives. And we're looking for that God-given design for the human person, the human body. So again, this writing assignment, although it is an essay in letter form, it's an essay. It's not actually being delivered. Uh, The assignment is meant to teach Christian ethics. It's a clear attempt to guide middle school kids um, in Christian ethics, sexual integrity, and how to deliver truth with love. This is evident in the writing prompts, even the grading prompt, um, the grading rubric is posted as well uh, in this. Now, I think it's important that we acknowledge, and I've said this already, that they're being told to write as if you've known this person, that they're a loved one, you have a friendship. Now, you, I want us to just imagine for a second, maybe you're really offended by this prompt, but imagine that you're asking a middle school age kid, who's aware of, you know, the sexual issues in the culture and is learning about chastity, is learning about the God-given design for the human person, the body. They're learning about the value of the human person. And imagine you replace this letter prompt to be to a friend that you've known since... Kindergarten, and that you've been good friends with. It. But imagine the prompt's different. Imagine the prompt is that you're writing a letter to convince them why they shouldn't have sex outside of marriage and they should be chaste and follow the God given plan and design for marriage and sexuality. Or maybe you're writing this letter to convince them as to the gift of human life and as to why they shouldn't support abortion or why God offers mercy and forgiveness if they have had an abortion. Or maybe this prompt could be written to a friend because they're using drugs and you're trying to convince them as to why using drugs isn't good for them. There are any number of other topics that this prompt could be written for, fictitiously writing a letter to a so-called friend that I think a, a lot of people wouldn't have a problem with. But because this has to do with the topic of asexuality and B, the LGBTQ topic, suddenly people are pointing at this and saying, that's gay shaming. That's homophobic. But read the letter. It's not homophobic. It's citing biblical truths, telling the truth, and being loving. And in fact, if you look at the grading rubric, the decrease in the grade goes along with the lack of loving truth. You know, you still get a grade somewhat okay if you share truth, but if you don't deliver it with love, well, the decrease in the the grade goes down. And so I think that it's important to see that what this writing assignment is meant to do is to teach youth to use their voices, to speak up for truth, to speak up for biblical truth, and to be willing to speak up to someone who they know themselves who's living a lifestyle that's harmful. And I was thinking about this because I've engaged in a lot of um, – role-play educational settings where you teach uh, young people. I do this with Vox Vitae. It's a summer training program that I'm involved in every summer where we take and train up a bunch of young Catholic leaders. And you know, we have the room. We split the room in half. One side is pro-life, one side is pro-abortion. And we encourage the pro-life side to defend these pro-abortion arguments that the other side's coming up with. Why is this important? Because through articulating the message – they're speaking to peers or to responding to hypothetical questions, you, through this practice, start to gain a little bit of courage. You start to become a little better at articulating your argument, at being loving, you know, of maybe even re- receiving criticism of that's not a very loving approach. Perhaps you change your body language. Perhaps you, you know, don't use an accusatory tone or accusatory language. This is a teaching environment. This is a Christian school encouraging and developing and forming young minds and hearts and souls and Christian ethics. This isn't a letter that's actually being handed to someone. This is a letter that you're hypothetically writing to someone you've known most of your life and who's living a same-sex lifestyle and whom you have been good friends with. That's the type of person who should and could possibly have room to speak up about this. You see, if I was living in a way that was dangerous or harmful, I would want my friend, a long-term friend or friend, to try to speak to me about the harm I'm doing to myself, the good I'm made for, and the God-given identity and calling I'm created for. But the reality is, is that many, many of us have loved ones who are living in adverse lifestyles. Maybe we're afraid to some say something. Maybe we don't feel we have the authority to say something because maybe we... We feel like hypocrites, or maybe we don't really have as good of a relationship as we thought, but we are called as Christians to be living witnesses to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the most loving thing to do is to set the right example, and at times, yes, to speak up and to intervene. We're called to be our brother's keeper, to lovingly care for others. Now, each of us has to navigate how to set a good example and maybe speak up regarding our lifestyles and other lifestyles. Uh, This is where we are called to follow a well-formed conscience. You see, this Christian school is trying to form a good conscience for these kids and teach them to follow that conscience, to be their brother's keeper. And it's interesting as I read this because I understand that, you know, some people, a lot of people are appalled by this writing assignment of this letter that would hypothetically go to someone who's experiencing same-sex attraction. But I actually really appreciate this writing assignment because, again, it's teaching kids to practice using their voice, to practice articulating biblical truths which are backed up, especially in relation to the LGBTQ issues, that are backed up by scientific, sociological, neuroscience, and all these other forms of science and study and research the back of the truth that these are not happy lifestyles and that follows in the footsteps of theological philosophical truths about the human person but what's interesting is I keep thinking about how Kim Zembar she wrote the book Restless Hearts I interviewed her here on the show a couple of um, gosh I think maybe around a year ago and it was interesting because in her book, she lived and struggled with a same-sex lifestyle. Um, being, you know, She identified for some time as a lesbian. She swung both ways, had relationships with both um, men and women, and she details her story in her account. And it's fascinating when you follow her story because ultimately years into living an adverse sexual lifestyle, one of her brothers, she comes from a Catholic family, one of her brothers speaks up. And she talks about how when her brother spoke up, it made a world of difference. And that she wished she had spoke that he had spoken up sooner. And her brother speaking up and calling and hoping and wanting something more for her and seeing how unhappy she actually was in that lifestyle was what helped lead her to fight to live a chaste lifestyle, according to her Catholic faith. It helped her you know, to start to seek out healing and the, she realized that what she wanted wasn't really a same-sex attraction or same-sex relationships, but she had an addiction to people and wanting to be with people. All it took was one person really speaking up to help change the course of many harmful decisions for her. One person lovingly wanting more for her life. And I think that this is what this writing assignment is meant to do, to help speak truth, to understand the word of God, the design for the human person, and to not be afraid to share it and that's something that young people desperately need to learn and understand. And This can be done through an educational setting where they're learning it. You're listening to Trending with Timory, The number is one 914 9149 if you have a question today. Okay, speaking of telling the truth and encouraging people uh, in lifestyles that are healthy and holy for them, that brings me to... Nancy Pelosi in the news. Nancy Pelosi has been known as years now for the Speaker of the House, and Nancy Pelosi uh, has outwardly proclaimed her Catholicism, calling herself a faithful and devout Catholic, while at the same time advocating for unfettered access to abortion. I'll share with you the breaking news today in just a moment. In a little bit, I'm going to talk about whether or not birth control use leads to higher rates of unplanned pregnancies. I'll debunk the false claim that when abortion is illegal, that maternal mortality rates increase. We'll also talk about food allergies, fertility, and thyroid health. I'll share a little bit of my story. I know a lot of people have been asking questions there. We'll be right back here on Trending. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timmery on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Have you ever struggled perhaps with food allergies, food sensitivities, severe bloating fertility any of that I've been receiving a lot of questions recently because I've shared a little bit of uh, some of our fun super healthy weird eating in our household on Instagram lately some of our fun recipes and a lot of people have been asking me questions about you know how did you figure everything out with your food allergies and Hashimoto's disease and the relation to fertility. So I'm going to be answering some questions and share a little bit of my journey in a bit because I know sometimes it's just like this onion to peel and trying to figure out what's going on and it's so hard to get answers. So I'll dive into that uh, shortly and take some important questions related to abortion, maternal mortality rates, so-called increasing when abortion is legal. That's a total myth. And also the claim that, so is the claim that Contraception decreases unplanned pregnancies. We'll get to that in just a moment, but we're talking about Nancy Pelosi, known as the Speaker of the House for many years, Archbishop Cordelione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, who is her bishop, has publicly declared that Nancy Pelosi cannot receive communion. That's the true presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Archbishop Cordelione released a public statement along with a tweet that came out today following up on a letter that he sent yesterday to her office. The tweet reads, After numerous attempts to speak with Speaker Pelosi to help her understand the grave evil she is perpetrating, the scandal she is causing it, and the danger to her own soul she is risking, I have determined that she is not to be admitted to Holy Communion. He is essentially ordering and informing his priests, deacons, and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion that they are not to give communion to Nancy Pelosi." Wise public proclamation? What came before this? Well, first of all, it's important to know a little bit of the history. Uh, Archbishop Corleone has both privately and publicly been inviting Nancy Pelosi to conversations and dialogue on this. He has met with her a number of times, but in more recent months and at at least the last year, she has not been willing to engage in conversation with him. Uh, He's called her and encouraged her um, regarding her. Her, you know, out loud claim to being a faithful, devout Catholic, while at the same time the contradiction of supporting unfettered access to abortion. So, some of you might be thinking, "Wow, this is really harsh. You're taking, you know, a very uh, private affair that is your faith and making it public." Well. I think first and foremost, it's hard because I think there are different perspectives about faith. And a lot of people like to say, well, faith is very private. That that is a perspective that people could hold. But the reality is is that our faith is meant to be lived out. We're not supposed to hide our faith under a bushel basket, under a table. You know, we're supposed to let our light shine. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as Jesus Christ tells us. So why a public proclamation? Well, Nancy Pelosi is a public proclamation. Figure who touts Catholicism and at the same time being a pro abortion advocate, viscerally attacking pro life individuals verbally as well as viscerally attacking pro life legislation and advocating and pushing for and being a champion of killing babies. So, Archbishop Corleone has privately and publicly admonished Nancy Pelosi for years now. Now, He's publicly informed priests, deacons, and extraordinary ministers not to give her Holy Communion in his diocese. Why? Because Nancy Pelosi holding to being a so-called devout Catholic and being pro-abortion, radically pro-abortion, is a scandal. She tries to claim her Catholic faith while not living her Catholic faith on an issue that essentially is a mortal sin that's grave matter that she has full knowledge on and is consenting to every single time she opens her mouth, supporting abortion, voting for abortion, advocating for abortion, and attacking pro-life individuals and pro-life legislation with her words. And so Nancy Pelosi has scandalized people by encouraging and telling them that they can be Catholic and pro-abortion. That's simply not true. And she has made a point of this for years. So has President Joe Biden. Now the Archbishop Corleone has had private conversations with her and many invitations, and even just last year launched a public prayer campaign when Nancy Pelosi wasn't being responsive, called Rose and Rosary Campaign, asking people to sign up to pray and fast for Nancy Pelosi, and he was sending her roses and rosaries, and. He has truly been trying to do everything he could. You know, he emphasizes watching an interview from him earlier today. He doesn't decide upon this lightly. Now, it's important that we understand Nancy Pelosi should, to begin with of by her own conscience as a Catholic, she should not be presenting herself to receive communion. We as Catholics are responsible responsible individually for refraining from receiving our Lord jesus christ in the sacrament of communion when we are in a state of mortal sin and following all the parameters and the full knowledge that archbishop corleone has on countless occasions informed and informed nancy pelosi on this she is aware the archbishop is not saying no one so the archbishop is saying no one is permitted to give her communion until this because she can come back into communion with the church How can she return to receiving communion? He said in the public statement that Nancy Pelosi is not admitted to Holy Communion unless and until she publicly repudiates her support for abortion rights and confesses and receives absolution for her cooperation in this evil by going to the sacrament of penance. Wow, okay, so this is a very heavy topic. What's wrong with receiving communion in a state of mortal sin? Well, let's take a deep dive into sacred scripture. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way that is unworthy of him will be guilty of profaning and sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So 1 Corinthians is making it clear that if you're receiving Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin, that's what would count you as being unworthy, you are guilty of profaning the sacrament. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 1861, referring to mortal sin, helps us to clarify and understand a little bit more. Mortal sin, remember, for something to be a mortal sin, it has to be grave matter. We have to have full knowledge, and we have to be acting freely. Now, The catechism here says mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. So in other words, we have a choice because of our human nature that is free. God created us not as robots to forcefully love him. That would be slavery. He created us with free will. And mortal sin, unfortunately is the possibility of human freedom but so is the opposite choice and that is love the catechism goes on to say it results in the loss of charity that is mortal sin and the privation of sanctifying grace that is of the state of grace if it is not redeemed by repentance and god's forgiveness it causes exclusion from christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. You see, this is the reality of mortal sin. This is the reality of publicly and privately and intimately living out things such as a pro abortion lifestyle and other things that are mortal sins. Because it destroys grace in the soul, it destroys the life of God in us, it just destroys our capacity to go to heaven if not confessed. This should be a moment where we're not just looking at Nancy Pelosi and Archbishop Corleone and saying yay or nay to what's been done. This should be one of those moments where we take more seriously the call to receive our Lord Jesus Christ worthily, to go running to confession if we're in a state of mortal sin. I don't wanna die in a state of mortal sin. I'm going to hell if I am. That's the reality. That's not something cruel to say. That's the truth. And that's why Archbishop Corleone has gone so far as to demand that Nancy Pelosi cannot receive Holy Communion because she is living outside of the church by what she's doing. She's living outside of the grace of God, and she is causing scandal for her family, for the nation, for the world. And so this is why this should impact all of us. We ourselves cause scandal to others when we're living lifestyles not in conformity with Jesus Christ, when we're being hypocrites. I keep thinking about the mass readings from today, John chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus Christ says, "'This is my commandment that you love one another "'as I have loved you.'" Well, love includes hard truth. It includes telling the truth, and it includes living the truth. And the truth of the gospel is the gospel of life. And Nancy Pelosi cannot be anti against the gospel of life and still claim to be Catholic. And nor can we, or nor can Archbishop Corleone. He's morally responsible and culpable for calling, challenging, and sometimes doing something so serious as as to saying you can't receive communion. Why? Because it's for the sake of her soul. This is not an act to keep her out of the church. This is an act to bring her closer to the church. And to ultimately, especially as Nancy Pelosi climbs up there in years, for her to prepare her soul to be with God. Someone wrote to me, Jim Burke, a longtime listener of Trending, wrote to me earlier this week, and I'll have to talk about it a little bit more on the show, but I was reading the message from him yesterday, and he was talking about how just heartbreaking it is to see someone like President Joe Biden, who is a lifelong Catholic, who, you know, kind of stayed out of the abortion issue, had a more pro-life stance on, on the abortion issue, and then, slower and slower, leaned more and more toward being pro-abortion, especially with becoming a presidential candidate. And now the President of the United States has absolutely caved on abortion and has become so pro-abortion. How sad to see the destruction of this man's soul. And Jim was saying, I hope that he will have time before the end of his life to repent. And I hope that this is the case for Nancy Pelosi so that they can be in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as I just stated, mortal sin destroys a life of grace in us and moves us, destines us. We destine ourselves. We make the choice. Our choices are that powerful to determine whether or not we will go to heaven or hell. And so how is this relevant to all of us? We're called to choose a life of grace, to choose a life living in a state of grace. We need to stay close to the sacraments, receive our Lord Jesus Christ worthily, and follow in his commandments. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Okay, taking a couple quick questions. Does birth control use lead to higher rates of unplanned pregnancy? Okay, this is a great question. So ultimately, what birth control did was it changed the perspective about having children it changes perspective because what we saw in the united states is we saw uh, birth control become decriminalized so birth control basically said okay you can have sex without babies well next thing you know in the united states we saw the court case decriminalizing no-fault divorce so then we said okay you can take babies out of sex you can take sex outside of marriage And what ended up happening between contraception, between no longer upholding marriage, and with then the fail -safe, safe birth control that is abortion, it suddenly created this mindset that we can engage in intimacy, sexual intimacy, anytime we want without any consequences. So when a child does result from that, and we are using hormonal birth control as a society, Children that are surprises and unplanned are therefore unwanted. I saw this firsthand over and over again, especially working in the crisis pregnancy centers and sidewalk counseling in front of the abortion clinics. I'd hear and talk to young women, especially as I'd watch the counselors in the crisis pregnancy centers who would be waiting for the positive pregnancy test or negative pregnancy test as a girl sits there waiting for her results. And One of the topics that is often discussed as you wait for the results of the pregnancy test is, well, okay, whether if you aren't pregnant, you know, what would your lifestyle look like? If you are pregnant, what would it look like? And talk about if you aren't pregnant, you know, we talk about things such as chastity, not putting yourself in a position to feel this anxiety and fear and you know, reduce yourself to possibly being a single parent or a child, not having both a mother and father, you know, all of those things. And so often the girls would always say, well, I can't be pregnant. It's impossible. And we'll say, well, why are you here? Well, and often the argument would be, well, I can't be pregnant because I engage in smart sex. I use birth control and often these girls would be using more than one form of birth control because they're trying to really make sure they don't get pregnant because they're living a lifestyle where they're engaging in intimacy, but they absolutely do not want a child. So what's the answer to this question? Does birth control lead to higher rates of unplanned pregnancy? Yes, because it leads to more unwanted children prior to birth control. Children were inevitable consequence of engaging in intimacy. But after birth control becomes legalized and a norm, children are no longer a normal consequence. They are a burden. They are unplanned. They are unwanted. They are unintended. They are accidents. And we need the failsafe of abortion. We engage now in reckless behavior of sex outside of marriage. Birth control, you know, it's interesting because if you even look at the statistics, birth control with its typical use, because most people do not use birth control perfectly, but with its typical use is really only 90, sometimes ninety up to 96% successful. So essentially, one in 10 times at least, a woman's still going to find herself weeks later pregnant. Now... The reality is, and I've seen this firsthand in crisis pregnancy centers and working with teens, teens are not using birth control correctly nor are college students who are going on it for the first time. Although the teen pregnancy rate has declined and the number of teenagers engaging in sexual behavior has declined, college and it's off the charts. Many women going right on to contraception if they haven't been already, and many women having their first sexual encounters. And the reality is, is that they are not using birth control correctly a vast majority of the time. So although as a nation we've seen birth rates decline to record lows both here in the United States and in other developed western countries, what we have seen is that unplanned and unwanted pregnancies continue to increase because the attitude is this child shouldn't exist, this child isn't wanted. And so birth control is not and has never been a option for decreasing abortion, for decreasing unplanned pregnancies. It actually contributes to unplanned and unwanted children. And that's a problem. And so I think it's important we answer this question and talk about it because a lot of people think that birth control is a solution to, contra- to, to abortion, and it's not and it doesn't solve the unplanned or unwanted pregnancy crisis. And the reality is a lot could be said about birth control, but it's important to remember the vast majority of birth control functions as an abortifacient. So if it doesn't help prevent sperm and egg from meeting, it can actually destroy new human life from ever implanting. Uh, The other thing that's important to recognize that birth control is a group one carcinogen, increases anxiety, blood clotting disorders, likely you're more likely to experience hypertension stroke there are a number of topics i could discuss not diving into it but it's bad for women's bodies it's bad for babies and it's bad for us as a society trying to have healthy wholesome relationships you're listening to trending with timory here on Relevant Radio, let's talk about the myth of the lack of abortion access leading to higher maternal mortality rates. This is a fascinating question. I was just asked this one. So basically, people try to claim that when abortion is illegal, that the maternal mortality rate rises. So when women don't have access to abortion, they say that more women die in childbirth and shortly after having their babies. This just isn't true. We have to recognize when we talk about maternal mortality rates in the last couple hundred years, the vast vast number of advancements in medical technology. In the last hundred years, penicillin, coming out right around the 1930s, incredible training in comparison to before, as well as as anesthesia, have played major roles in lowering the maternal mortality rate. And people will try to claim that abortion did that in the last century, but that's just not the case. Now, it's really interesting to see, because what nations have had the highest maternal mortality rates? It's actually really interesting. The highest maternal mortality rates have come from two of the countries with the most permissive abortion laws, with some of the higher abortion rates, abortion numbers, abortions being performed. And that is the United States and Russia. Especially the United States, with, you know, touted to have such incredible medical care, why would we have a higher maternal mortality rate? We have, people would argue, excellent health care and I mean, nearly unfettered access to abortion in the majority of the nation. Shouldn't we have a lower maternal mortality rate than other nations? That's not the case. Same with Russia. Permissive abortion laws, high abortion rates, and high maternal mortality rates. But guess where has had historically the lowest maternal mortality rates in the last century? Let's name five countries. Ireland, Poland, Malta, Chile, and El Salvador these five countries have had the lowest maternal mortality rates and they have also been the countries that have not had legalized abortion or have had very very minimal access to abortion let me repeat that again the countries nations with the lowest maternal mortality rates are the five countries that have either abortion outright completely outlawed or very little access to abortion. Ireland, Poland, Malta, Chile, and El Salvador. Now, it's interesting because Ireland has actually been the lowest. Now, Ireland has been held as a very Catholic country and for years has upheld up until just a handful of years ago to being totally pro-life. Now, that changed a few years ago, but prior to this, what we saw is that Ireland actually had a three times lower maternal mortality rate than the United States. And they had the lowest maternal mortality rate in all of Europe. And they were the nation without legalized abortion. And so it's important to see this connection of maternal mortality rates and the truth about maternal mortality rates. So to debunk that, no legalized abortion does not increase maternal mortality rates in fact we see exact the opposite and you want to talk about decreased maternal mortality rates in the last century penicillin training of physicians and nurses in anesthesia have saved women's lives. And that's the final point. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I'll be right back and we're going to unpack uh, people. A lot of people have been asking about a little bit of my health journey from food allergies and Hashimoto's disease. I know a lot of people are trying to find answers to their health issues and eating. So I'll share a little bit of kind of our journey and where we went with that. I'll be right back here on Trending. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timmery on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Major shift in last topic for today. I've received a lot of questions about food allergies and thyroid and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, I've had, oh my goodness, upwards of 30 food allergies. I have uh, had a Hashimoto's disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, struggled with fertility, Um, And so I receive a lot of questions on this topic and I've been sharing some fun recipes on my Instagram recently of just our super healthy food, I guess you can say that we eat here out of necessity in our house. And so a lot of people have been asking questions. So I want to share just a little bit of my journey because I have encountered so many people who are looking for answers when it comes to extreme bloating, pain, fatigue, and I'm talking about extreme fatigue, fertility issues, and all of this has played a part in everything from fertility to thyroid. So, um, taking a deep dive, I, long, kind of a little bit of long story wrapped up. I struggled with skin allergies when I was a kid. In high school, found out that I had uh, that I was allergic to wheat and. Um, I also, you know, had a little bit of it—not horrible, but had, you know, a little bit of anxiety that started kind of in middle school and high school. Later on, would understand that that was part of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, in college, I found myself my freshman year in college. I am exhausted. Like it. It's hard to even get out of bed, and long story short, um, we do some allergy testing and all kinds of tests. They think a million things could be wrong, and the doctor comes running into the room saying, oh my goodness, you're allergic to gluten you're allergic to soy and you're allergic to peanuts so i said okay we already knew about the gluten and actually i found out about gluten early high school through process of elimination at that time the blood tests weren't very good for food allergy testing and we really had to do a process of elimination it was so bad my gluten allergy that literally when we finally figured out it was gluten we eliminated it from my diet but i had rashes all over my head still, and we end up figuring out that it's wheat protein that was in my shampoo and conditioner. We get rid of that. Oh, praise the Lord was doing a little bit better. And I, I had like cystic boil looking acne on my face that was painful and hurt, and it was from gluten. So we figure out in college, I'm also allergic we, uh, to soy and peanuts, eliminate those, and we I start getting energy again. I think my lungs were like working at like. like my breathing was so bad from these allergies that it was, you know, I wasn't going into anaphylactic shock, but I was having severe gut damage and, you know, severe mental fog and exhaustion because allergies can impact different people in different ways. Like my allergy to cedar trees is different from my allergy to wheat and my allergy to other things. Different things can impact you more so dermatologically. It can impact your gut. Uh, it can impact your brain differently. So long story short, kind of fast forwarding, I'm in grad school and I was having major pain and bloating. I was even vomiting and exhaustion, brain fog, kind of just to wrap it up. I ended up at the point of having 30 different food allergies and an obvious undiagnosed autoimmune disorder. And so we started finally getting answers, started eliminating all these foods, kind of had this rotation diet of like, here are all these food allergies, but then I also had food sensitivities. I bring that part up because it's important. A lot of people who are struggling with food issues, there are different types of tests. There are dermatological tests where you're poking the skin and exposing your skin to various things, and if you're allergic dermatologically, sure, you'll show up on a test in the, the POKE dermatological test that you're reacting. But there are also different types of food allergy blood tests and different types of food sensitivity tests. And so we worked through all of these pieces and figured out that from all the damage from the food allergies, I also had a small intestine, what's called a placebo, small intestine bacteria overgrowth candida, which is a yeast infection in your gut basically. And I had leaky gut where essentially the lining of my stomach had giant holes in it from all the damage of these foods. And then basically your stomach wasn't doing the right thing where all these foods are passing through your stomach undigested. And then your immune reaction is basically going in and attacking your body. I lost a ton of weight in grad school. I was like pale, like my arm, like if you were to squeeze my arm, it was like a marshmallow. You could just like sink right through it. It was horrible. Long start was kind of like peeling layers of an onion back and discovering one thing and another that was going on. I ended up getting married and I decided, okay, you know, I really just want to have pizza once. So at this point I'm allergic to casein, which is a protein in dairy. And I decide I'm going to have pizza of a gluten-free pizza, but that pizza, um, for the next three months, I was just off the charts, feeling really sick And that led us to our NAPRO doctors, who we love here on Trending um, because we knew at that point something was going on with fertility as well. And the NAPRO doctors helped us to diagnose Hashimoto's disease and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, I've learned a lot about both of these. Apparently, Hashimoto's is often um, misdiagnosed for polycystic ovarian syndrome and that Hashimoto's disease can also cause and lead to PCOS or PCOS symptoms, um, both of which can impact fertility. Um, Hashimoto's disease, your immune system can actually attack the baby while you're pregnant and cause a miscarriage, and PCOS can prevent you from being able to get pregnant. Uh, so all of this uh, kind of this long story, it, there's so much I could share in the story, uh, but I wanted to share some news. And the good news is is that I actually just found out this week that my Hashimoto's disease is in remission. And this is ironic timing and such a gift from God uh, because ironic timing is a lot of people have been asking me about kind of my health journey and food and how we figured out everything. And I can tell you, I know Brittany and a lot of people on social media have been asking questions about this. We really, to find the answers, had to follow a multi-pronged approach of modern medicine, traditional medicine, uh, new forms of medicine, such as NAPRO technology that helps, you know, looking at underlying health causes impacting women's fertility. It wasn't kind of a one, one doctor, one physician who could answer. And even like Hashimoto's disease, apparently until you're in your 30s, Hashimoto's disease can really go in and out of remission. And so you don't necessarily catch it until it's kind of a little more serious in your 30s. And so certain doctors Most doctors actually don't know how to test for all the different ways to really figure out if this person has Hashimoto's disease, and this is why we didn't catch it for all those years. Also, a lot of doctors don't know about different types of allergy testing um, and different types, uh, different ways to test the blood for both allergies and then also sensitivities. And for example, allergies can actually cause autoimmune disorders. It's actually one of the leading triggers that can cause Hashimoto's disease. And so I really think that you know, following allergen specialists, doing blood work, using integrative medicine as well, I, all natural, my family jokes, I you know they're hippie in the family because I'm all about healthy, natural living. Um, but we actually even figured out because I'm allergic to gluten, corn and soy, Those are the main things fed to most chickens and uh, to most cows. And so if I was having animals that weren't grass-fed, then I was actually having an allergic response to the eggs, the chicken, and the beef that I was eating. And so I was also reacting to the hormones and pesticides in foods. Uh, Vitamin deficiencies also was impacting the development of Hashimoto's disease, adrenal gland dysfunction. But here's the big deal. Food allergies, if you have food allergies, you suspect, get tested, test for food sensitivities, get the right amount of sleep, the right amount of exercise, reduce stress. All of this plays a huge role on fertility and a lot of the food allergies and autoimmune disorders that people are experiencing. But eating healthy is a game changer. And I'm so excited because praise God, it's really led to us having a lot of healing in my health journey. Have you joined us yet for our weekly happy hour on Trending? This is Timray from Trending with Timray. Mondays, we discuss everything from happiness, although it's fleeting, to joy, which is rooted in God. We address midlife crises, prayer, friendship, job satisfaction, and you name it, because who doesn't want to have lasting happiness, joy rooted in God? Join me daily at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.